If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. Uh, finishing a series on the book of Isaiah feels like an accomplishment for all of us in some ways. Uh, and so before we close it, this may seem strange, but I just felt like I wanted to acknowledge all the people that have helped me on this journey of understanding the prophet Isaiah, and therefore have helped all of us to understand Isaiah. So just so you know what this process was like, David Jackman wrote a book called Teaching Isaiah, and this was the first guy I turned to every week, and he helped me break down the book of Isaiah in a really helpful way. So thank you, David Jackman. Uh, this very web a smaller commentary, and Alec Motyer, I'm still not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, wrote a big one. And these guys uh, helped me every week in either confirming or correcting or dismissing my understanding of every text that we looked at. There's a team of teachers at a church called St. Helens Bishop Gate in London, William Taylor, Paul Clark, Jamie Child, and David Jackman. They accompanied me on runs. Uh, through my neighborhood or drives, and I listened to their Isaiah sermons, and sometimes they were so clear and so pastoral, I just wanted to tell you, listen to their sermon. And uh, But they were helpful, as well as a guy named William Still, who is with the Lord, but whose sermons were always insightful and helpful to me. And then also, thanks, I'm going to set these down. Thanks to the, the Thursday evening prayer crew, some of you have been a part of that in rotation, but every Thursday we read through the sermon text for the, the coming Sunday, and it was always invaluable the way that those folks from our church helped me to understand the forthcoming week's passage and ask good questions. And so uh, I'm just reminded as we finish a series that throughout life, including in sermon preparation, uh, we are supported by one another, and we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So... One other final note on this series, this sermon will be the 52nd sermon in the book of Isaiah, which means that there is a sermon for each week of the year, which is exactly how I planned it from the very beginning. Just kidding. Um, but I thought that was intriguing. So if you, if you want to rehash the book of Isaiah in 2022, you could listen to a sermon every week. Uh, which could be fun, or some other year. Or maybe you know someone who would benefit from this study. Every time I told someone we're going through the book of Isaiah, they would say, man, I wish I could study the book of Isaiah. Uh, 35, 40, maybe some weeks I went a little longer, 45 minutes a week, uh, and someone could walk through the whole book of Isaiah in a year. So I will put that up on our website in a playlist, actually, and I'll let you know about it. But for now, we're at Isaiah 66 the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. Uh, like everyone who grew up within an hour or two of Sandusky, Ohio, I spent at least one day each summer of my teenage years riding the roller coasters at Cedar Point, uh, the great roller coaster capital of the world there in Ohio. Uh, the summer of the year 2000 brought the opening of a roller coaster called Millennium Force, which was the first roller coaster to have a, a hill that was over 300 feet tall. And it's been a long time since I, I rode that roller coaster. Two things I remember. One is that both times I, I rode that roller coaster on the first hill, I felt like I was going to block out. It was so fast. <laughs> it was just amazingly fast. And the other thing I remember is how much speed there was when you got to the end of that roller coaster. 
So in other words, it, it never slowed down. And if the track had been longer, I think it would have just kept going for a lot longer. There was so much speed at the end. And as I read Isaiah 66, I thought about the millennium force because Isaiah never slows down. This book does not come to a simple conclusion. Rather, it comes sort of like the millennium force. It comes screaming into the station at full speed with the same force that has marked this entire book. It doesn't let up and it closes with another strong contrast between the two ways that we are called to live in this world. The big idea of this passage is, is bold and it's confrontational. This is what it says to us. Tremble at God's word now or be consumed by his wrath in the end. Tremble at God's word now in the present, in this day and in this moment, or else be consumed by his wrath in the end. Now, there's more to Isaiah's message here in Isaiah 66, but there's not less than that. There's not less than that call to tremble at God's word now or be consumed by his wrath in the end. And the stark contrast between those who long to obey the Lord by faith and those who condemn themselves by their pride is clear in this whole book and in this closing chapter. And isn't it merciful that Isaiah would spell out that contrast so clearly? We think about calls to judgment as harsh, but isn't it merciful? Isn't it a mercy to warn a child not to stop, touch a stovetop? Isn't that mercy? Isn't it mercy to teach a teenager the dangers that come with driving a car? Isn't it mercy to confront a friend or a family member who's trapped in addiction and show them that the path they're on is leading to destruction? And if it's a, warn, if it's a mercy to warn others of, of temporary pain that can come in this life, then how much more is it a mercy to warn all people of the perils of false religion? and to call them to find their hope by, trump, by humbly trembling before God's life-giving word. So this is a merciful message. It sounds harsh, but it is full of mercy. Isaiah ends his prophecy by telling us to tremble at God's word now or be consumed by his wrath in the end. We'll think about this chapter in four different parts, and I want to go ahead and read it in four different parts. So we won't read the whole chapter. We'll read uh, a section and then discuss it. Uh, and the first section is in uh, verses one through six of Isaiah 66. So hear God's word. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. 
but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Isaiah ends where he began in chapter 1. There are bookends in this book. And both of them reveal the perils and the pitfalls of false religion, the futility and the worthlessness of feasts and fasts, of sacrifices and offerings, of religious practices that lack heart devotion. So Isaiah calls Israel not to perform religious acts, surface acts, but rather to tremble at God's word. Let's think about verses 1 through 6 with that heading, tremble at God's word. Verse 1 causes us to look backward and forward at the the place of the temple in in Israel's worship. At the dedication of Solomon's temple, he said something very similar to what Isaiah says here. Heaven is my throne, uh, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? At the the dedication there, Solomon is surrounded by the beauty of the temple that, that he and the people had built and standing in the long shadows of this beautiful uh, temple. His words don't fit the celebratory occasion. He says this in 1 Kings 8, 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon understood what Isaiah is saying here, namely that if, if God sits in power in the heavens and the earth is his footstool, the place where he props up his feet, then how could a temple hold him? And the issue is not God's size, because God is a a spirit, but rather it's his all-encompassing power and presence. It's his immensity in all things, as well as the fact seen in the first part of verse 2, that God is the one who made all these things, including the temple itself. Stated negatively, I think we could say that nothing can hold God's presence. But stated positively, we could say that God's presence is everywhere. So how could he be held in one spot? This is what we call his omnipresence. And that truth is not some sort of theological hoop to jump through. It's actually a deep comfort that even when Israel is taken into Babylon for their sin, God is with them and God would be with them. His spirit would follow after his people. It's a truth that's brought home even more powerfully in the New Testament reality that God's people are in fact his temple where his spirit dwells, never to leave us. Yet in Isaiah's day, the focus was still on the temple such that when the exiles returned, you remember that the first task after rebuilding Jerusalem's walls is to build the temple. And Isaiah is not against that. He's not against temple construction any more than any of the prophets or the leaders of that day were against the people rebuilding the temple. But he knew that rebuilding the temple would not solve the core problem of God's people. This is what Barry Webb says. Isaiah understood very well that physical restoration of the temple was not enough. Unless there was spiritual renewal, the future would simply repeat the sins of the past. Build a new temple, but if your heart isn't changed, it doesn't matter. So Isaiah once again draws this contrast between those who trust in external religious practices 
and those, but their hearts are far from the Lord, and those who are humble, who are contrite in spirit, who tremble at God's word. If you look at verses 3 and 4, it's, we see there that if God's people were to go about the religious practices without engaging their hearts in true worship, then essentially the temple of the Lord would be no different from a pagan temple to a false god. He contrasts, especially in verse 3, right religious practices with the practices of a pagan temple and says they're the same thing if your heart is not in it. Their offerings and their actions would mean nothing to the Lord because their hearts were, were far from him. These are the ones, verse 5, who even persecuted the faithful remnant that remained, and yet they would be the ones that were judged in the end. The message is similar to the one given by Samuel to Saul after he disobeyed the command of the Lord, supposedly sparing the flocks that he was told to destroy so that he could offer them up as an offering to the Lord. But what does Samuel say to him? He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And Isaiah here says, humility, a contrite spirit trembling at the word of God is better than any kind of heartless sacrifice you could make. The human heart is a deceptive thing, isn't it? It can obey God's word in spite of pride. It can obey God's word in a spirit of pride and self-importance. We can walk in God's ways as a means of glorifying ourselves. But the one to whom the Lord looks with eyes of blessing and love is the one who is humble and contrite. We started this series in Isaiah in part because everything I read about the Sermon on the Mount that we were studying at the time said you need to understand uh, Isaiah's prophecy before you can understand the Sermon on the Mount. Is this not the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who tremble at God's word. This idea of trembling at God's word, Motyer says, is to have a sensitive longing to obey. A sensitive longing to obey. God is not as concerned with what we do as with the heart that we have while we're doing it. He's not as concerned with what we do as he is with the heart that we have while doing it. And the one that he looks to is humble, is contrite, and trembles at his word. These, verse 5 says, are the ones who truly hear his word. Brothers and sisters, God through Isaiah once again reveals the perils of heartless false religion. Or in the words of the prophet Samuel, and the old singer Keith Green, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. God doesn't need anything from us. What does he want from us? He wants our life. He wants our devotion. He wants our heart. Verse 6 is a, a bridge or a, a hinge part of this passage. It's a bridge from the present to the future. As a, a commotion is heard in the city of Jerusalem and then in the temple itself. But the commotion, the noise, is, is not a sound of joy or celebration or, or worship. It's the sound of the Lord bringing judgment. Judgment in the temple? The picture shows us what we have often seen in Isaiah, namely that judgment begins in the Lord's city and in the Lord's temple 
with the Lord's people. His judgment starts with his people. Isaiah is not the only one who reveals this. In Ezekiel 9, 1 through 6, Ezekiel describes the destruction of idolaters, and it begins with the household of God. It starts in his sanctuary first. The Messiah's coming is described with these words in Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a, he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Even Peter in the New Testament in 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18 says this, for it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We've said recently, as we've been studying Isaiah, that the first coming of Jesus that we celebrated yesterday, uh, that in in, while we were thinking about his incarnation, that that coming is focused on salvation. Jesus brings in the year of the Lord's favor, and it's his second coming in which he will bring judgment, which is, is true. But I think I may have overstated that because there are elements of judgment that come in the ministry of Jesus. And who does his judgment come on? Who does Jesus reserve his harshest words for? It's those who practice heartless, performative, false religion. It's the scribes and the Pharisees, isn't it? He pronounces judgment. The religious leaders of the day, leaders who were not humble or contrite, leaders who pushed against the word of the Lord through Jesus rather than trembling at it. If you've read through the Gospels, and maybe even if you haven't, then you can probably tell me where we see Jesus reveal his righteous anger most clearly. Where was he? He was in the temple, wasn't he? He was in the temple. And in the context of that act of, of cleansing, there are words of judgment. In, in one of the Gospels, it's bookended by the cursing of a fig tree, saying that no fruit would ever grow on that tree again, revealing that the nation of Israel had been judged. In the shadow of Mount Zion, he tells the disciples that if they have faith, they can throw mountains into the sea, revealing, in fact, that faith, not a specific mountain, is what is important to him. He spoke clearly of the coming judgment on Jerusalem in his last days, which would come in AD 70. In all of these acts, and there are so many others, especially near the end of the gospel writings, Jesus is doing away with the old covenant ways by fulfilling them in himself. He is doing away with sacrifices by becoming the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is doing away with the temple by becoming the temple. And even by letting people tear down the temple of his body so that he can rebuild it into a temple that will never die. He pours out his spirit on all, on all people on, because all of his followers from all nations can be filled with his presence. And he says to us that the ones he will look to are not those who do the right thing in the right place, on the right day. It's those who tremble at his word. Those who, through the power of the Spirit, are humbled to see that they can never do enough 
to find themselves in God's good graces, but that Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf and offered up his body as the sacrifice for our sin, including the sin of prideful, false religion. Such an attitude is is not only the means of entering the kingdom of God, this trembling at at God's word, but it's also the attitude that marks the follower of Jesus for the rest of his or her life. Do we presume sometimes that God is particularly pleased with us because of our acts of religion? I mean, let's be honest. We are the people that showed up at church on the day after Christmas. Bonus points, right? We came. No. None of these things put us in in God's good graces. God is concerned with our hearts. Are we humble and contrite? Do we come to God's word with a heart to hear it and to be changed by it? I don't know. It's hard to think of a better way to describe someone. If someone asked what you were like and they said, well, you know what? They're humble. They're contrite in spirit. And they tremble at God's word. Well, now the Lord's judgment arrives in the temple, the fi- and, and, and after it arrives in the temple, uh, the final judgment comes into view. Barry Webb says this, The death throes of Israel, as it existed under the old covenant, turned out to be the birth pangs of the new age. What a great way to say it. The death throes of Israel, as it existed under the old covenant, turned out to be the birth pangs of the new age, mourning is suddenly turned into joy. And so having been called to tremble at God's word, we are now in verses seven through 11 called to rejoice at the birth of God's new people. Rejoice at the birth of God's new people. Verses seven through 11. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her and joy, all you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Rejoice at the birth of God's new people. Verse 7 begins with the delivery of a child, but a very unique delivery. It's a delivery with no labor, no contractions, just a sudden birth. (laughs) I've been around for seven births, and that is not how it usually happens. (laughs) This is a miraculous birth. It's, it's supernatural, which is why we see the questions of verse 8. Who's ever heard of such a thing? Has anyone ever seen this? Can you find a doctor who's documented something like that? Certainly not. This is a, a miraculous birth, and it's also said to be an inevitable, ver- an, an inevitable birth in verse 9. God says that things have been set in motion, and there's no stopping them now. There's no stopping this, this birth. It, it reminds me of... A little bit over a year now when little James was born, and as we waited for the midwife to get to the house, I was 90% sure that I was delivering that baby because it was time and there was no stopping his arrival. In fact, there seem to be two births in mind here. I think the first one is the one that we just celebrated. 
It's the the miraculous arrival of Emmanuel that Isaiah foretold back in chapter 7. And this supernatural birth sets in motion the inevitable birth of a new nation. Jesus arrives and announces that all nations may now come to his holy city and that all nations are welcomed as his children through faith. The judgment on Jerusalem that we see in verses 1 through 6 opens the door for the whole world, including Jerusalem, to become children of God. And so we're invited to rejoice with Jerusalem like we would with a a new mother because her judgment through the arrival of Jesus and the doing away of the old covenant means that she has now given birth to countless children from all nations. What an amazing thing. And it happened in a moment, just in a moment. So in verses 10 through and 11, I think this is what's going on. The miraculous children of the miraculous Christ give continual thanks to Israel because her judgment has paved the way for our welcome. We are like a nursing child in that we are satisfied in Jesus through the work that God has done through his people. And the true children of Jerusalem rejoice at the opening of the gates so that the nations might stream in and be nourished by her. I don't claim to understand all of that. (laughs) I'd invite you to think about this passage in light of Romans 9 through 11. I think that would be helpful in understanding a lot of these things. One thing that came to mind is Romans 11, 11 through 12. It says, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. I think that's part of what Isaiah is saying here. And and then Paul goes on and draws some conclusions. Through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So, I say that to say there's a lot happening here, but this afternoon, I wonder if we might just simply pause and wonder at this strange and surprising work of God, how he works through Israel and and through us, that he sent his son and judged his people so that a new birth might result in a new nation. Who could come up with such a thing? It's almost too good to be true, but just almost because it is true. It's the truest of all miracles in the universe that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And now an invitation comes on the heels of this miraculous birth, an invitation to receive the comfort God offers. That's verses 12 through 17. Receive the comfort that God offers. We not only rejoice at the the birth of God's new people, but we are invited to receive the comfort that God offers. Look at... um, Verses 12 through 17. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants for he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury 
and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword will all flesh, with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. Before those closing images of judgment, the image of a child is continued here. And having been born, God's children are now comforted and cared for. The image of the second half of verse 12 is of a child who is fed and held close and rejoiced in, bounced on the knee as we've all done with our kids or our grandkids. And the image speaks of the the peace and the joy that uh, speaks of peace and joy that are mentioned in the first half of that verse. It's a verse that reminds us of that great promise that I love so much from Isaiah 48, 18, where the Lord laments, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waters of the sea. And now we find that those who tremble at God's word, they know this peace that overflows and never ceases like a river. Those who trust in the Lord have peace like a river. God's people are comforted here as the fullness of Isaiah 41 through 2 is realized. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What a promise. And all who, who know God's peace and comfort in Christ, verse 14, rejoice and flourish like a well-cared-for lawn in early spring. you got to mow it more than once a week because it's just flourishing. And that's what God's people are like. God's hand comes in, in blessing on his children, which makes me wonder if ultimately it's the Lord himself who is the one nursing us and caring for us and bouncing us on his knee in verse 12, comforting us. I... I don't see why it couldn't be. He is the one who Zephaniah 3.17 says, rejoices over us with gladness, quiets us with his love, and exalts over us with loud singing. Oh, the tender compassion of God to his children. The wonder of a God who delights in those that he saves. He doesn't save us and then call us slaves saves us and calls us dearly loved sons and daughters. He rejoices in us. He cares for us. He comforts us with his love. And yet that's not how he is to all people. We see right on the heels of these beautiful pictures of God's tender love and wonderful care that that he will show indignation to his enemies. Verses 15 through 17 remind us yet again how fearful a thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Instead of comfort, those who rebel against the Lord, those who choose to pridefully trust themselves, who refuse to tremble at God's word, they will be met with fiery justice. And so as the wonder of God's salvation and the fearfulness of his judgment come together, Isaiah closes his vision by imploring us to behold the glory of God. Verses 18 through 24, I think, are a final plea for us to behold the glory of God, specifically in salvation, but also in all of his works. 
Look at verses 18 through 24 as we think on this theme, Behold the glory of God. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fires shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The initial image of this chapter seems to be a people from all nations gathered to God who are then sent to gather all nations to God. They're they're brought in, and then they are sent out. It shows all nations and tongues coming and seeing the glory of God. The, The judgment on Israel remember, has brought in the nations, but then those nations are sent out. They go into all the world and proclaim the good news of the Messiah's salvation to all people because those who behold God's glory declare God's glory. And then the nations come in on all sorts of transportation. (laughs) They're coming in on mules. They're coming in on horses. They're coming in chariots. They're riding on camels. They're showing up from from everywhere. Can you see them all? They're just streaming into Jerusalem from all nations. They're coming in. And here they come, all descending on Mount Zion, and they're all bringing offerings. And the offerings are themselves. And from these nations, God forms a new nation, a nation of priests who worship him. I was looking at the shepherds and the wise men in our nativity set recently, and I was reminded how these two groups reveal who ultimately comes to the Lord. And it's in fact actually the same groups that Isaiah is talking about in this passage. The shepherds remind us that the Lord resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's the humble and the contrite ones who tremble at God's word like the shepherds trembled at the word of the angels. These are the ones who hear and receive the message of the gospel. It's those rejected by society that are welcomed by our God. And the wise men remind us that all nations are invited into God's glorious kingdom. Every tribe and tongue, every people and nation, every race and ethnicity, they come on all sorts of animals from all sorts of different places and they worship the Lord. And then they go out and they proclaim his salvation to all people because those who behold God's glory in Christ, declare the glory of Christ to the world. Such is what we must do if we are his children. As the Christmas song says, we must go tell it on the mountain. 
over the hills and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born, the spirit of the shepherds and the spirit of the wise men is the spirit of Isaiah that brought in from all nations. We go then to all nations and declare the glory of God. And Isaiah fittingly brings us back to the new heavens and the new earth as all are welcomed into God's perfect kingdom. And that description there emphasizes, I think, that this is an eternal people living for God's eternal glory. It's, a, it's this day that will never end, that everyone is brought in and your offspring and your name remain forever. They never die. And there is never an end to this time that we worship the Lord for all eternity. It's a people who are eternal and a God who has given glory for all eternity. That's the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And as we've said, in order for that glory to remain, it means that sin must be banished forever. Because there are those who are not there. And uniquely, in a way that's unsettling to me, but is true to God's word, that's how Isaiah closes his book. He closes it. The final verse is about those who reject the Lord. It's this final plea of mercy for them to not reject him. Because those who reject the Lord, those who rebel against him, face eternal death. The contrast of verses 22 through 23 and verse 24 reminds us that either we give God glory and know the rejoicing and the comfort of Zion, or we face his perfect and eternal justice for all eternity. Tremble at God's word now, or be consumed by his wrath in the end. And so as we close out the book of Isaiah here, between Christmas and the close of this year, I think we're invited to remember this miraculous birth that has made the new birth and the birth of this new nation possible. The birth of Jesus that has made it possible for all nations to come to him. And so too, we're also invited to reflect on the end to which all years are flowing. Isn't the end of a year in some way a reminder of the end of all things? We're reminded to think about a time when all God's children from all nations are going to be welcomed into his presence. And when all God's enemies will be consumed by his wrath. We're tempted to dismiss such a word, to emphasize one side of it or the other. But by God's grace, may we instead tremble at his word here. Beholding the wondrous mystery of Jesus and the salvation that he brings. Seeing the, the future glory of those who, who rest in Christ. And remembering the eternal judgment that awaits all who will continue to rebel against our God. Isaiah has some themes and he brings them all out one more time. He one more time calls us to hear God's word, listen to God's word and trust in him alone, knowing that if we're not firm in faith, we won't be firm at all. Knowing that, that our hope of becoming God's holy people, living in God's holy and new Jerusalem is not found in us, but it's found in the Messiah that he's been revealing throughout the chapters of this book. It's found in Jesus who is the sovereign king of the universe, who is the suffering servant, who has been pierced for our transgressions, who is the anointed conqueror who will come again to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. I invite you, behold the glory of God. Tremble at his word. Trust in his son. Rejoice in the good news that he saves his people and he welcomes anyone who will repent and trust in him 
into his eternal kingdom that will never end. Could we spend a moment in silence and reflect on God's word? And then I will close this. Father, we thank you for our friend and our brother through faith, Isaiah. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through the word that you gave him. Thank you for his faithfulness, that he was a part of this remnant that stayed true to you and continued to call his people to repent and to believe and to trust in you alone and nothing else who believed that, that you were coming as this sovereign king and suffering servant and anointed conqueror. I thank you for even those who loved Isaiah and helped to piece this book together as, as this beautiful revelation of who you are. And we do see your glory in this. We see the glory of your salvation, both in the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth that we're invited into, but even the, the justice and the terror that comes on those who reject you. So Lord, thank you that Isaiah never lets up. Thank you that he comes into the end, Lord, reminding us that there are two ways to live. And so Lord, help us to choose this narrow path that is difficult and hard at times, but that leads to this eternal day where we worship you for all time. Thank you for all of these promises. Um, and thank you for the gift of your word to us. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.